Late one evening, two men sat alone together in a bar in downtown Detroit, and uh, one of them looked at the other one and said, uh, are, you, uh, are you from around here? And the guy said, yep, I grew up right here in Detroit. And the other guy said, well, that's amazing. He said, I grew up right here in Detroit also. He said, what year did you graduate high school? He said, I graduated in 1993. He said, well, that's pretty amazing. I graduated from high school in 1993. What high school was it? He said, I went to Luther High School. He said, well, I went to Luther High School. I graduated in 1993. Uh, He said, well, what part of the city did you live in? He said, I lived over in the southeastern part of Detroit. He said, I lived in the southeastern part of Detroit. Well, what street did you live on? Guy said, I lived on Washington Avenue. He said, I lived on Washington Avenue in southeastern Detroit, graduated in 1993 from Luther High School. What house did you live in on that street? I lived in 2314 um, Washington Avenue. I lived in 2314 Washington Avenue. Well, just at that moment, the, the phone rang and the bartender answered and it was his wife. And he said, yeah, it's getting ready to close down. Not much going on. The only people here are the, are the Johnson twins and they're drunk again. Uh, so I share that with you because you don't have to be drunk to know this weekend that you and I have a lot in common. Uh, we literally this weekend have people here from all over the map uh, as it relates to faith. There are a lot of Christians this weekend whom for them, this is literally the biggest Sunday of the year. These are the people who have on their light green Easter tuxedos or their pink Easter dresses with their matching bonnet. They got the nine inch study Bible under their arm. It looks like a lunchbox. When they whipped in the parking lot this morning, you could hear them blasting out to K-Love. They got a bumper sticker that says something like, be an organ donor, uh, give your heart to Jesus. Uh, when they smile, they got this little, little gleam in their teeth. Uh, there are those people here. There, um, these are the kinds of people, by the way, who this morning did not give their kids a chocolate bunny. They got them a chocolate cross with a little sash on it that says, no bunny loves you like Jesus or be happy in God or something to that effect. Uh, by the way, personal pet peeve of mine, if you did get your kids a chocolate bunny, I hope that you got them the solid one. I always felt so ripped off when I got the hollow one. I told my parents, I feel like this is a metaphor of your love for me. Looks good on the outside, a hollow on the inside. Uh, so there are some of you like that, that, um, that this is the biggest Sunday of the year. There are others of you um, for whom this is the only Sunday a year that you come to church. Uh, we call you our CEOs, our Christmas and Easter only friends. Uh, so welcome back from Easter and Christmas last year. Good to see you again. And then we have others for whom this is literally the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church. You are the ones that are sweating a little bit right now because you're wondering uh, what's going to happen. Uh, why did all these people have their hands in the air? Were they waving at some are they trying to give Jesus a high five? Um, what is going on? They look at you, look at me right now, and you think, are you the snake guy? Are you about to pull the snakes out? What's going to go down here? Um, so we have people literally all over the map this morning, but we still have a lot in common, even with that. And that is that we all ask basic questions, all of us, whether we're religious or not. We ask basic questions like, is there a God? Uh, and if so, what does he really want? What does he really want? Or or what happens after we die? Can we know what happens after we die? And how do we get prepared for that? Does God consider me to be a good person? People want to know that. Does God think of me as a good person? And and if not, what do I need to do to to become a good person in his eyes? The place we're going to look at in scripture today answers those questions probably better than any other place in the Bible. It's one of the most recognized passages in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. If you have a Bible or somebody around you has a Bible, I'd love you to take take it out or look on with your neighbor and, and, uh, and, and follow along with them. It's the story of when God gives to the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. 
the Ten Commandments. Now, as you're opening your Bible there, I need you to do something for me real quick, if you will. Um, That is, when you came in uh, this morning at all of our campuses, you got uh, something that looks like this. And I want to do a little preparation here for the end of the message. I'm going to go ahead and take care of it. Um, If you open it up, there's a little flap on the outside. Now, at the end of the message, I'm going to ask some of you to turn this in, and I will explain to you um, more specifically then, but I don't want to um, make it awkward for those of you that are going to turn it in, having to rip it out because that makes a noise and you don't want people looking at you. So we're just going to have a little rip out party together right now. Um, we're all going to rip it out together at the same time, and then you can go ahead and fill out all of you the, um, the part. Hey, I'll tell you when, just be... Um, <laughs> so we're going to do it on three here, ready? Okay, we'll rip it out together. One... Two, three, now you can rip it out, all right, everybody's got it. You can fill out the appropriate portions there, and then at the very end of the message, I'll give you instructions about what to do um, in filling it out and and turning it in. If you don't come to church here, uh, we are taking a year to go through the whole story of the Bible, Um, and Exodus 20 is simply where we are in our progress. Um, If you're just joining us, now, do not worry, you're not going to feel left out this weekend. This message stands on its own. That said, if you would like to um, be able to get your mind around the big picture of what the Bible is teaching, the whole story, I would invite you to come back next week and you can just jump right in like you've been here the whole time. Uh, some of you say, well, Exodus 20, I was really hoping to hear about the resurrection today. Um, you will, you will, I promise. In fact, this passage is going to explain to you why the resurrection is necessary. It's not just important that you know that he rose. You got to understand why he rose for you to know what the significance is. And so uh, we're going to do that. In many ways today, it'll feel like they say the way that Rembrandt painted his paintings. It was a lot of dark. Um, That's the way he started just so he could paint a few lines of light, but the dark really made the light stand out. And that's what we're going to do. So let's walk through this. Exodus 19 is where we're going to begin. One chapter back from Exodus 20. Um, The giving of the 10 commandments began like this, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the people to wash their garments, be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around this mountain where God is going to descend. And he's going to say, take care not to go up into the mountain or even touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. I want you, if you can, to try to imagine this scene. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, mysterious trumpet blast. Nobody knew where it came from. It just kept getting louder and louder so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought out the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The whole mountain looked like it was, was ablaze. The smoke of that mountain went up like the smoke of a furnace. Can you imagine this? The whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses, on the people's behalf, called out to God. And God answered him in thunder. Imagine you're there on the plain in front of that valley or in that valley before that mountain on that day. You are terrified because literally the mountain is on fire. It is shaking. There's a trumpet sound that is splitting your ears. Your kids are terrified. And you want to comfort them, but you can't because you feel terrified. You're holding tightly to them because you know if one of them breaks loose and runs up toward that mountain, or even one of your pets does that, then they are going to be killed. The message that is given in Exodus 19 is clear. God's majesty, his holiness is an awesome and terrifying reality. It is nothing to be trifled with. 
And it is out of this scene in Exodus 19 that God gives the Ten Commandments. Ten things God says, Leviticus 18.5, if you do these, if you do these, you shall live before me. But if you cross this line, if you disobey these things, you will die. You say, well, that sounds harsh. I understand that, but at least consider this. That is consistent with every other picture we see in the Bible of God's holiness. In the book of Numbers, we're going to find the story of a man who collects sticks on the Sabbath, contrary to the law that God had just given. God had told them, this is what I want you to do on the Sabbath. And the man went out, did something that we would consider to be morally innocuous. He picked up some sticks. How bad is that? So the congregation brings him before God and says, what are we supposed to do with this man who violated the law? And God says, stone him for one small infraction of the law. In the Garden of Eden, it was one bite from a forbidden fruit that brought condemnation on the entire human race. You ever thought about that? All the disease, all the suffering, all the pain, all the natural disasters, hell itself came from one bite of a forbidden fruit. In Genesis 19, there's a man named Lot who God tells he and his wife to flee a certain place and not to look back. And she turns around and with one glance looks back at the city God has told her to get out of and she has turned into a pillar of salt. She loses her life for one wayward glance. In 2 Samuel, we see a man named Uzzah who reaches out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant. It was, it was being pulled by a couple of oxen and one of the oxen tripped and the, the cart that the Ark was on began to, to stagger, began to sway and, and he thought it was going to fall. So he just reached out and, and touched it to steady it, which was forbidden by God for them to touch that Ark and God struck that man dead. For one touch, God struck him dead. Now, I know you hear that. Some of you say, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. God was mean and cranky in the Old Testament. And then he comes back as Jesus, like God 2.0, you know, Jesus meek and mild. He's all gentle. Um, in the New Testament, we find the story of a man, named, a man and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira who exaggerate the amount they put into an offering one Sunday. I mean, they gave really generously, but they just exaggerated it because they wanted to look good in front of other people and the Holy Spirit struck them dead which is never good for church growth, by the way. People being struck dead in the middle of the offering. I've been to a lot of church growth conferences. Nobody's ever brought this one up as the way to grow your church. But God's holiness, his purity, his goodness is absolute and perfect. And those who would enter his presence cannot do so with any sin in their hearts. The prophet Habakkuk said it this way, God is of such purity that he cannot even look at evil. Y'all, we think that our sin is not that bad because we have a very human-centered view of sin. It doesn't seem that bad to us. But you measure the wickedness of a deed, in part at least, by whom the deed is committed against. If you get mad and you kick a wall in your house repeatedly, right? Well, that might be a sin of frustration. You probably need to repair the wall, but it's not that bad of a thing. But if you get mad and kick a dog repeatedly, then you've done a genuinely bad deed. If you kick the lady next to you in the grocery store line, then you're probably going to go to jail. If you strut into Buckingham Palace and roundhouse the Queen of England, it's going to be worse than just going to jail. The little guys with the fuzzy hats are going to come in with sticks and beat you senseless. Our sin becomes more wicked based on who the sin is against. Our sin is infinitely wicked because it is against an infinitely righteous and glorious God. So it is in light of that that I want you to read through these Ten Commandments. Have you ever asked yourself how you measure up to these commandments? They say that 92% of Americans can't even name them all, right? And, and, and you say, well, that's a tragedy. That's not, the point is not having them memorized. The point is, how do these show what's going on in your heart? What do they reveal about your heart? 
Because this is, we were supposed to obey all these things just instinctively. We didn't need to be commanded to do these things. They were just supposed to be the natural response of who we are. So that's the question. How do you measure up? Hey, here's what I want you to do. If you're taking notes, I want you to make yourself two little columns, like a W column, a win column, and a loss column. And I'm going to walk you through these commandments, give you a short explanation of what they mean. And then if you feel like you have consistently kept this commandment throughout your life, then you give yourself a W. And if you feel like you haven't, you give yourself a loss. And let's just keep score. If you don't have something to take notes on, just do it in your mind. All right, here we go. Number one, commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Can you say, can you say, I've never put anything before God in my life? Nothing's ever gotten the place of God. He's always been preeminent in my thoughts, in my affections, and my actions. In other words, the thing that I've always gotten most excited about in life are him and his word. I've always gotten more excited about my relationship with him than I have a, a new romance or um, a new job or a new possession. Would you say that is a, a win or a loss for you? Have you consistently kept that one or not? I mean, I just think me, just you know where I'm at, I, that's a big old L for me. When I look at my life, I, a lot of times I get more excited about a new TV show I've started to watch than I do about God and his word. Here's number two, you shall have no carved images of me. This commandment is about reshaping God according to your liking, believing wrong things about God because you would prefer God to be a different way. Have you consistently and always refused to do that believing fully everything that God's word reveals about him without wishing that God were different or trying to change it into what you want God to be? Is that a, a, a yes or a no? Is that a win or a loss? Here, here's number three, commandment three, you shall not take my name in vain. This has to do with more than just not saying GD. It has to do with how highly we regard the name of God. Can you say, I've, not only have I never used God's name as a swear word, I've always held God's name in the, in the highest respect. I've always represented that name well. Never, for example, calling myself a follower of his, yet not obeying him fully. I've always fully and completely lived up to the name Christian. Is that a win or a loss for you? Here's commandment number four, remember the Sabbath. This has to do with giving God fully what belongs to him. In scripture, God tells us that there's a portion of what he gives to us that we are to automatically give back to him. As it relates to time, it, it's one day, a Sabbath day. As it relates to money, it's the first fruits, or we usually say 10% of what God gave to us. Can you say that you have consistently given to God all that was due to him, specifically remembering to set apart one day weekly to worship him with others? Is that a yes or a no? Commandment five, honor your parents. Honor your parents. This has to do with how you relate to the authorities in your life. Because see, your parents are the first representation of the authority of God to you. Uh, scholars point out that the commandment to honor your parent, father, mother, is the fifth commandment, which means it comes right in the middle. The first four commandments are about our relationship to God. The last five commandments are about our relationship to other people. This commandment about honoring your parents is the hinge commandment because it bridges God and man, because the first representation of the authority of God in our lives is our parents. So the question is, how did you relate to the authority of God? The bigger question is, how have you related to all the God-appointed authorities in your life throughout your life? Can you say, I never disobeyed or dishonored my parents or any others in authority over me. I consistently respected them and gave them honor and willing obedience. I've done this with every God-appointed authority in my life, whether that's a government official, my boss, the local the peace, police, those who write the traffic laws, or whomever. All right, what do you think? Yes or no? If you're a kid right now, look at your parents and they're just going like this. They're going, no, that's a big old L for you. 
All right, by the way, kids, that's the same on their list too, okay? Uh, number six, you shall not kill. You're like, finally, one in the W column. And Jesus came along and he messed that up. Because Jesus said that to hate somebody in your heart or to desire their harm is to commit murder in your heart. So here's the question. Can you not only say, I've never murdered anybody, can you say, I've never had hateful thoughts or taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm or misfortune happen to another human being? Some of you violated that five times in the last hour. In fact, you're thinking right now, you're fantasizing about somebody pummeling me, so I'll stop yelling at you. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. You say, well, I think I'm good on this one too because I'm not even married. And Jesus messed that one up because he said to think even lustful thoughts about somebody to whom you're not married is committing adultery in your heart, which is what God sees, of course. Can you say, I've never entertained thoughts about physical intimacy with someone to whom I'm not married? Is that a yes or a no? How about commandment eight, you shall not steal. Can you say, I've never taken anything that doesn't belong to me? I've never taken credit I don't deserve. I've never taken anything. I've never fudged my numbers. All right, well, we're coming up on April 15th. So I mean, I, I just changed a few numbers. The government will waste all my money anyway. Plus, I didn't even vote for the people that are in office right now. I don't like them. Now, I need this money more than they do, and I'll do a better job with my money anyway, so I'll just keep a little bit of it, even though God has put them as an authority in my life. You say, who's it really hurting? Can you say, I've always refused to enjoy anything that I just wasn't entitled to? I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, not trying to make light of this, but do you remember Napster when that came out? And remember how we were all like, hey, everybody's music is now for free. And then somebody came along and they're like, actually, no, it's stealing. We're like, no, no, it's sharing. See, right there it says file sharing. And mom taught me that sharing is caring. So it's a good deed that I'm trying to do here. But deep down, we knew it wasn't free. We knew it wasn't free. We did it anyway. Hadn't your life been filled with those kind of things of it's not, is it right? It's just, can I get away with it? Have you always given fully to others what they were entitled to, never defrauding your employer, for example, by using company time to check Facebook or watch YouTube or things like that? Can you say, I've always been completely truthful and fair in all of my dealings? Is that yes or no? Commandment nine, you shall not lie. I shouldn't even have to go over this one, but can you say, I've never lied, never exaggerated, never slandered another person? I've never exaggerated the truth for my own benefit. I've never covered over one of my mistakes. I've always told the truth in every situation regarding every person I've ever known. Is that a yes or a no? <laughs> I've heard people say, well, I don't lie per se. I just sometimes struggle with telling the truth. I'm like, so you don't lie? No, no, just struggle with telling the truth. Like, like right now, right, right. I'm not telling the truth right now. I've told you before that when I lie, it most often follows a pattern. Here's where I struggle with telling the truth. I, I, I want to exaggerate my accomplishments to make myself look more awesome than I am. And I want to minimize my failures so that there's no reason that you have to disrespect or make fun of me. So the reason that I lie is because I value other people's opinions more highly than I value God's opinion, which is not only a violation of the ninth commandment in the lie, it's a violation of the first commandment in that I love your opinion more than God's. So not only do I get an L in the lying column, I get a double whammy, a double deduction in column number one. It's like I break them all at the same time. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet. This is probably the worst one. Can you say, I've never been greedy for something that wasn't mine? I've never been jealous of the abilities, the looks, the position, or the possessions of others. I've always been fully content in just what I have. Y'all, I'm pretty sure the entire HGTV network is built on coveting. 
It's, it's like cribs for people with, a, with tools and a little bit of disposable income. That's how I, I see that. At least on MTV's cribs, I know I could never afford that. That's just not my world. HGTV is, here's all the things your house could be if your husband was a little bit more handy and if you'd just chosen more wisely in your marriage. Can you say, I've never resented other people's success, never resented the house they lived in, the opportunities they have, their beauty, their talents, their possessions, the way their body looks, their popularity, their husband, their wife, whomever. I've always rejoiced with others in their blessings, even being glad when they had it and I didn't. Is that consistently yes or no? Be honest with yourself. What are you? What's your score? I'm 0 for 10. Folks, if you get zero on the only exam in a class, do you really think you're going to pass that class? Now, remember the setup for this chapter. Cross the border one time, one sin, and you die. Do you see why Paul says we are dead in our sins? Obedience to these laws was supposed to come naturally to us. Our hearts were supposed to love God so much that we naturally did all these things. I I don't need to be commanded to do the things that I love. You never need to command me to eat a steak or take a nap or hug my kids or kiss my wife. I do those things without commands because I love those things. We weren't supposed to need to be commanded to do any of this. There was one man in Jesus's life who had the audacity to say to Jesus, after Jesus walked through a list like this, the man said, oh yeah, 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 all these I've kept since my youth up. He was what we call a Pharisee. And here's why he said that. Pharisees were professional do-gooders. They built a career on doing good. They developed this thing they called the hedge around the law. The hedge around the law, think of like a, like a, a hedge that you would put around a hole that you don't want to fall into. So they were so concerned with not disobeying the commandments that they made a bunch of other commandments to keep them away from the commandments that God had given. That was the hedge around the law. Um, if you grew up in a house with really strict rules, you can probably relate to this. In, in, in the world I grew up in, cussing was so bad that you couldn't even say a word that sounded like a cuss word. So we couldn't say darn it or golly or gee whiz or daggummit, right? None of that. Sorry, Coach Roy. You just couldn't say any of that stuff. We couldn't go see G-rated movies at the theater because when we were at the theater, we might be tempted to see an R-rated movie or maybe even worse, somebody else would see us at the theater, wouldn't know we were going to the G-rated movie. They would think we were going to the R movie. Then we would influence them to go see the R-rated movie. They would see it and then it would be our fault. I kid you not, that was a line of reasoning that was used. We could not make out with girls because it might lead to dancing, right? We had all these rules. This guy said, not only... Not only did I keep all the rules, I kept all the rules that kept me away from breaking the rules. So Jesus looks at this guy and he says, all right, one thing that you like, go sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor and follow me. Now y'all, Jesus, he, the man couldn't do it. He says he, he loved his possessions too much. Jesus's point was not, hey, there's one more bonus one I forgot to tell you about. Jesus's point was to turn it away from actions that you took into a heart and how you felt about God. He was trying to put the focus on what this guy's heart loved the most. And he was saying that the essence of the commandments is that your heart loves and prioritizes God above everything. Has that always been true in your life? You see, you were created for God to have the first place in your heart. Has that been true? These laws, these 10 laws don't change you. Obeying them don't change you. They just reveal how messed up your heart actually is. God's not after you coercing your behavior and earning your way into heaven. God wants people who obey him because they love him. He wants people whose hearts desire to obey them. I've used this example, and I apologize a little bit because it's a little bit of an earthy example, but it gets the point across. I've described it before, like if somebody before the service started had an accident and just threw up right here in the middle of the floor. 
my big steaming pile of vomit. I, I would never need to look at this congregation and say, hey, rule the Summit Church is you are not allowed to come down here and look up this vomit. I, I'm serious. We take that really seriously here. You come down here, look up this vomit, we will throw you out of here. Nobody needs me to say that, right? It's disgusting. Now, if you're a dog, if you're a dog, I do need to make that rule. Because you're like, oh, you know, warm vomit, half-digested hot dog. Mmm, you know what I mean? And the moment I'm not looking, you're going to be down here looking it up. So I'm going to have to put a couple big old guys with sticks beside, you know, to, to, to beat the dog when the dog tries to come lick it up. God does not want spiritual dogs in heaven who only obey God because they're afraid they're going to get beat with a stick. He wants people there who do righteousness because they love righteousness. He wants people there who do loving things because love is what in their heart. He wants us to obey, not because we have to, but because it's just the impulse of our heart. God's holiness in these 10 commandments reveals how sick we are. That's why the prophet Isaiah, after seeing how sinful his heart was before God, uses this metaphor Isaiah 64, 6, when when Isaiah the prophet finally sees himself in the light of how God sees him. Isaiah 64, 6, he says, all my righteousness, all my good deeds, they're like a a filthy rag. Filthy rag, the way it's written in Hebrew, doesn't mean like a rag that you use to change the oil or clean something in your house. It's it's a pretty disgusting term. It it means a rag that they would use to to wrap the, the body of somebody who had an infectious skin disease like leprosy. After the blood and the pus and the infectious disease, the rotten skin had soaked through these rags, they would take them off and burn them. They were filthy rags. And what Isaiah sees is, is this is how I appear before the throne of God. Even my righteousness is like this filthy rag that has been soaked through with the defilement of the sin of my heart. You say, well, this isn't a very uplifting message. You will never appreciate the true lifting power of the resurrection until you come face to face with what he has lifted you out of. You see, our usual response to this is we try to diminish the holiness of God. We're like, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect. I'm sure God grades on the curve. Scripture never does that. Scripture says consistently, cross this line one time and you will die. Scripture points to a different solution. We're going to see that solution given toward the end of the book of Numbers. Israel specifically has broken one of the commandments. It is commandment number 10, the you shall not covet commandment. And Israel is coveting, and it's shown by the way they're complaining about all the things they wish they had that other nations had. God, you're really not taking care of us. We're not content with the way that you're leading us. We want this other stuff too. So God sent snakes among them called fiery serpents. They were symbolic of death, the curse that was brought on by sin. And the people having been bitten by these snakes cry out to God, and so God tells Moses to make an image of a bronze or to make an image of bronze of a serpent looking like one of these fiery serpents and to put it on top of a pole and to put that pole on top of a hill. And he tells Moses to tell the people that if they will come to where that serpent is mounted on the pole and they will look at it and believe that God will heal them. God's response was not to downplay their disobedience. His response was to in love provide a means by which they could be healed. You only get a, gl- a dim glimpse of it in the bronze serpent because that was just a symbol of what God one day would do. In what is perhaps the most well-known passage in the Bible, Jesus, listen, takes this metaphor and says, this is how you understand me. Jesus says, John three fourteen, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, that's how I'm going to be lifted up. That just like the people, when they came and they, they looked at this bronze serpent and they believed God healed them, so the ones who believe in me are going to have eternal life. 
Because God, you see, so loved the world. He loved it so much that he gave, not a bronze serpent, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him. What's it mean to believe in Jesus? It doesn't mean that you believe that he existed. It doesn't mean that you just come to church all the time. Believing goes back to what they did when they looked at that bronze serpent. You look at it and you believe this is what was given to you as your healing. You believe that Jesus took the curse of that snake. He was bit by it so that he could die in your place. And if you believe that, if you look to it, you would not perish, but you had have eternal life. Here's how Paul says the same thing, Romans 10, 9 and 10. He says, if you would just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You'll confess with your mouth that Jesus was lifted up for you, and then you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See, then you'll be saved. It's when you look at that empty tomb and you say, that it was a tomb occupied by my sin, and God resurrected Jesus, showing that he had paid the full penalty of my sin. When you believe that, that's when healing and forgiveness flows to you. Again, our answer to the problem of our sinfulness is to downplay God's holiness, but scripture never does that. God demands perfection. The gospel is that he also supplies it. The gospel is that our sin was so bad that Jesus had to die to save us. Y'all, why do you think Jesus had to die? Why do you think he died exactly? A lot of people say when I ask that, like, well, he wanted to show us that he loved us. How does him dying, how does that show us that he loves us? I mean, think about it. If I go come to you and I'm like, I I love you so much, and you're like, prove it. I'm like, watch. And I go out and throw myself into oncoming traffic in the middle of I-40. Does that prove that I love you? It might prove my insanity. I mean, just why, how does that show you that I love you? It only shows you that I love you if I'm doing something for you by putting myself in harm's way. Jesus' death for us was not just a statement of love. It would only be love if he were doing something for us that we desperately needed to be done. And he was, he was dying in our place. He was dying to give us the righteousness that we could not obtain in our own. We say he wasn't just dying for us, he was dying in place of us. He was becoming our curse of sin so that we could receive his gift of righteousness. You will never understand or appreciate the resurrection until you see the grave that he lifted you out of, until you understand the price that he paid and why he paid it. He went into your grave. The cross was your fate. His grave was your eternal destiny. And Jesus took that penalty and entered your grave and shattered it. Listen, the resurrection is not just about giving you a little religious pep in your step, a few giddy thoughts about the afterlife. Sometimes I feel like people come in here on Easter and they want me to do this religious religious motivational talk that makes them feel good. I want you to feel the flames of hell because only then can you understand how Jesus saved you. People want me to create this moment where they have, you know, chill bumps about the resurrection. I want to create disciples, and that begins with you understanding why Jesus saved you and starts with you understanding the grave that he pulled you out of. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. He saw that I couldn't do what I, what, I, what I needed done, so he came and he did it for me. The gospel is that I was so bad that Jesus had to die for my sin. He was so loving that he was glad to die for my sin. The gospel declares, come you weary, weak and, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. So here's the question. Have you ever done this personally? Have you ever looked in faith and experienced his forgiveness and his healing? One of the most famous preachers of Christian history was a man named Charles Spurgeon. 
He was a very educated man, one of the most eloquent men that's um, ever occupied a Christian pulpit. He pastored in London in the 19th century. He's been called the Prince of Preachers. My favorite thing from his life is his own recounting of his conversion. It came from one of his sermons. He says this, and I quote, he says, I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until even now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was trying to find my way to a certain place of worship. There was a respectable church in town and he was spiritually seeking. And so he wanted to go to the place where all the educated people were, where they dressed in really nice clothes so we could hear an educated message because he was super smart. He said, but because of the snowstorm, I, when I, I could go no further. So I turned down the side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. First church and only church I could find open. In that chapel, there might've been a dozen, maybe 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. Some of you felt like that in here this morning, didn't you? Um, but that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I didn't care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not even come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. So at last, a very thin looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed and learned men, but this man was really stupid. <laughs> and just goes ahead and says it. He was obliged to sit closely to his text in the Bible for the simple reason that he had little else that he could think of to say. The text that morning was Isaiah 49, 22, look unto me and be ye saved all ye ends, all ye ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. He could scarcely read, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It just says, look. Now look and don't take a great deal of skill. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You might be the biggest fool and yet you can still look. A man needn't be rich to be able to look. Anybody can look, even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me, I, said he in this broad Essex accent, that's probably the equivalent of a North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina twang. He said, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it ain't no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ, the text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and I'm buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, the poor chap was at the end of his tether. He could think of nothing else to say. Then he fixed his eyes at me in the back under the balcony, and he must have known that I was a visitor. So fixing his eyes firmly on me, as if he knew everything that was going on in my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I knew that I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text, but if you obey now at this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You had nothing to do but to look and live. And at once I saw it. I saw the way of salvation. I know not what else he said that morning. I didn't hear anything after that. I was so consumed with that one thought. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent. 
The people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked. I looked and I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen in that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had just told me that before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. And it was no doubt all in God's timing. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw that stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Here's a question. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Do you remember when it happened to me in my first year of college when I finally understood that he died for me? I, I, I'd known that he died for the world. I, I, I could tell you that, but, but, but it was in, I suddenly saw that it was for me that he died. I, I wanted to know how you could know for sure that you would go to heaven. And then it, it just finally made sense. It was in the middle of Romans chapter four and it finally made sense that what he had done, he'd done for me in love, that he bore my sin and took my curse. Then when he got out of the grave, it was for the release of the penalty from my sin. It was like the world dropped off my shoulders and love lifted me. You feel trapped by sin this morning. Look and live. Are you fearful about what's going to happen to you in your life? Look and live. Are you frustrated at how much you try and fail and try and fail? Look and live. Because I can promise you that if Jesus went into the grave to deliver you from sin, he's going to give you whatever power is necessary to be able to live the way that he wants you to live and to soar victoriously as he wants you to soar. The choice is yours. Nobody's stopping you. You can look whenever you want, whenever you want. Look to Jesus. He took every ounce of punishment for you. Look at the tomb. It's empty. Look and believe and be healed. The bloody cross and the empty tomb are the greatest news in all the world. This morning, the cross is bloody, the tomb is empty, the throne is occupied, so you can look and you can live. Listen, you need to look because you're dying. You may not feel it, but like the people of Israel bitten by those vipers, every one of us, the most healthy among us, those with the greatest potential for money or success, we're dying under the curse of sin. You don't need a moral improvement. You don't need a religious booster shot. You don't need a fresh star. You need to be born again. That's why I can't get away from the word saved. I'll be honest with you, I don't like the word saved. I don't like to use it because I feel like a, it sounds kind of redneck to me. I, mean, I get this image of this pudgy preacher in a suit that doesn't fit, who's you know, screaming in like six syllables the word saved. And I'm like, I just don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy, but I can't come up with a better word. You don't need to be improved. You don't need to be tweaked. You don't need to be enhanced. Come to Jesus and get enhanced. That's not what you need. You need to be saved because you are under the curse of death. Your heart is wicked. And the gospel is not that you're not really that wicked and God's really not that holy. The gospel is that God demands perfection, but God is so loving that he supplied it to you. It's a gift if you'll look and live. Have you ever done that? What he offers is to wash away your sin and start the process of new life in you. And you, this morning, can look just like Charles Spurgeon did. 200 years ago, you can look and you can live. Why don't you bow your heads, all of our campuses, bow your heads with me. Have you ever looked? Have you ever looked? Right now, I want you to see Jesus on the cross in your mind. Do you see that he did this for you? 
He wasn't just dying for the sin of the world. He was dying for your lies, for your rebellion, for your dishonesty, for your impurity. He was wounded for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities. He was raised from the dead to shatter the power of the grave for you. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stain. Those who look shall live. Do you see him? Do you see him? Can you look? Can you look and believe? It's a look by the way of repentance because it acknowledges that Jesus is the Lord. And in humility, it says, yes, you're the Lord. I'm not. I've sinned against you and I I receive the salvation that you're offering. Say it to him in your own words. I receive it right now. I receive salvation. I trust you as Savior. I receive you as my Lord. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed at all of our campuses, let me ask you something. I'm not trying to trick you or anything. But if you prayed that prayer just now for the first time, or maybe even the first time that you really understood it, and you were trusting Christ as your Savior this morning, at all of our campuses, could you just do me a very simple thing? Would you just raise your hand? I'm not doing this because I want to trick you. I just want to, you to acknowledge it between you and God. So just right now at all campuses, just lift your hand. Yeah, I see you. I see you. Put your hand up. Hold it up just a minute. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised, those I can see and those I cannot. Because I know that this moment was appointed for them to look and live. God, and I commit them to you. I thank you, God, for the empty tomb. I thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Look up here at me, if you would, with all campuses. Remember that thing I had you tear out? I want everybody to pull it out. I don't want anybody to feel self-conscious. So let's everybody take it out. If you pray to receive Christ, I want you to indicate that right here. First, first thing, I just want you to check that. In a minute, when the offering comes by, you're going to drop it in. Right underneath that is a little place that says, I'd like to investigate being baptized as a profession of my faith. Baptism is the first act of obedience. A lot of times we'll do it on Easter, but this year we decided to do it the next two weeks after this. And we just want to give you a chance to get prepared for that. We're not going to try to hound you. We're not putting you on a mailing list you can never get off of. It's just we want to be able to put into your hands the resources to be able to make this decision meaningful. For you to get baptized if you never have been. And then for you to take the steps and become a a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. So you take a minute. I'm going to leave you here at all your campuses to fill this out. And then our worship teams will come and they'll lead us um, as a response to the gospel.